Hey guys, Rachel here. I'm here to give a shout out to our season seven sponsor, Learn FTD. Learn FTD is a website stocked full of useful FTD resources, information on genetics and genetic testing, tips for approaching doctor's visits, and so much more. Presented in a digestible way, Learn FTD provides extremely helpful information across all facets of the disease. But more than that, Learn FTD highlights hope and a path forward through genetic testing and research. For more information and to join their mailing list to stay up to date on their growth, visit www.learnftd.com rm. My name is Maria. And I'm Rachel. And we're the hosts of Remember Me. Our podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with dementia. We hope this episode helps you feel more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. Perfect time for Brennan to settle down. He's on our team. He's a good remember. He passed out. Okay. So today we have an FTD advocate, a new friend of the podcast who contacted us and said, I want to let people know about my family's journey with clinical trials. So welcome to the podcast. Will I just call you friend? Our friend? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, friend. That's a good one. (laughs) Can you just kind of jump into how did your family learn of this disease and just kind of walk us through your entry point into this world? Well, what I knew was that when I was really little, my grandma had some kind of dementia and I knew that they weren't calling it Alzheimer's really, but they didn't know exactly what it was. And this was in the eighties and she ultimately died essentially of it. And then fast forward 15 years later, my uncle started developing symptoms that the rest of the family said was very much like his mom. So some of the behavioral stuff, some of the movement stuff, and I'm a physician. And um, at that point, this idea that maybe this was something inherited came up. And now this is the early 2000s, and it still wasn't quite as well known as what we call FTD today. So my uncle was given a diagnosis of Pick's disease at the time. But being a physician, I kind of was poking in the literature and kind of starting to understand that specialists were, were starting to call this FTD. And at that time, it wasn't really clear what the genetics were around it, what the inherited piece was, just that there clearly was something inherited. And then fast forward 10 more years, and now my aunt, who worked in a physician's office, started developing symptoms. And that physician called me up and said, you know, I think your aunt is starting to do things kind of like your uncle because she, she knew of that history. So he said, well, let's just start with an MRI. And it actually showed significant atrophy in the frontotemporal lobes. And so she was actually far along, I guess, at that point, at least as far as the brain MRI, that they could actually say something specific. And that's when 
I think it became pretty clear that this was this entity we're now calling FTD. Can I just ask a quick question? So you're mm -hmm. saying that your family or the people around your family could kind of see a shift in yeah. your loved ones. Can you, or do you know if the same behaviors were presented across the board? Yeah. 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 There was kind of sort of a withdrawal, uh, speaking less, I guess you'd call it kind of a uh, reduction in empathy. What normally were very affectionate people were starting to be more reserved and held back. And then there was like executive issues. So they just weren't able to like accomplish the tasks that work that they used to. What, what were the ages of like grandma, your uncle and your aunt when they started to kind of quote unquote change? My grandma was an interesting case because her onset began after she had a, a minor head trauma. And so we kept describing it to that. And she was in her mid sixties at that point. And I think that's partly why people weren't calling it Alzheimer's. You know, they knew there was something there. And then my uncle was about 58. And then my aunt was yeah about 58 as well. Can I ask a question? You don't have to answer this, but I think it's really interesting as we talk to a lot of families. Was your family open about these changes and challenges and seeing doctors and getting diagnosis? Was there some information sharing or was there let's keep this quiet, it's fine, you know, let's not share with people kind of this situation that's happening in the family. So my uncle lived in a different state and I, I didn't have that close of a contact with him. But I can speak to my, well, beginning with my aunt, that, yeah, we came from a very close-knit social family. And I think everyone kind of recognized that there was something inherited there, that my aunt had something similar to her brother. And I don't think we tried to keep it too private. As far as sort of the specifics of the medical stuff and the genetics, being the physician in the family, I think they, you know, all came to me and said, you know, we'll, we'll follow your lead and, um, and where we go with all this. So as a physician, did you kind of know where to go, where to start when you started to kind of put the pieces together? Okay, I think that this is inherited. I think there's a genetic piece here. Like you said, everyone was looking to you. Were you like, I know the way? Or <laughs> were you lost like some of us? Like, where do we even begin here? I'm grateful to to kind of have had the tools to know how to navigate this and some help along the way. So like I said, my aunt worked for a physician and she actually started sending me some of the initial papers about FTD because I I'd, I'd kind of put it aside since my uncle passed. And she said, I think your aunt has what your, her brother had. And I think it's this. And so she sent me a paper about it. And so that, that kicked that off. And then essentially I knew how to kind of find the local expert to where they lived because we lived in different states at that point. And so I brought her to the local expert at, at an academic medical center where she got the actual formal diagnosis. At that point, there were no trials happening local to them of any sort. So therapeutic or observational or anything like that. And um, just digging a little deeper, I found out that there was a center not too far from where they lived that was at least doing an observational trial and that there might be an opportunity in there not only to add to the body of research, but 
maybe understand the genetics better. So it was a bunch of problem solving. But yeah, I, I think that at the end of the day, I was grateful to to know how to navigate that. So I can't help but think, and it's like no way the same, but when one of my kids gets sick, I'm just waiting for the other one to get whatever it is, the throw up flu, the one. Is that how you're feeling at this point? Like, oh my gosh, uncle, aunt, like, are you at all worried or concerned or does it come up in your thoughts that maybe this is something that, uh uh-oh, could be coming for me or my family, you know, what, what's like the emotional state at this point? Yeah. I think that my first concern went right to my mom, you know, a single mom and uh, only child. So she's so important to me and older than her sister. So I guess part of me was thinking, well, maybe she's past the, uh, the age that she should get it. And uh, maybe we're lucky here. But I also knew that maybe it's just a matter of time. And so I certainly was waiting for that to drop. And I wanted to be proactive about it as well as for the other siblings. So you said that you... Yeah. So you said that you found an observational study and, you know, you facilitate this with your aunt and you bring her to the study. Do you know at this point they'll probably suggest and give her the option for testing. And did you have any awareness of like, you know, which mutations and like, kind of tell us like what your mindset was going into the observational study? I think my thinking there was one that just participating was just good for such a rare disease. I understood at that point that any participant in these trials is is a super important data point because of how rare it is. And I also recognized that the center was where uh, we would be some of the first to learn about therapeutic trials, anything to do with the genetics. At that point, it wasn't actually that easy to get genetic testing. So like the first specialist we went to, which was a major academic center, it was a bit of a struggle to, to figure out if there was an identifiable gene here. But then when we went over to the other institution, they kind of greased the skids and we we could kind of get on with sort of knowing what the gene was and what the inheritance picture looked like. Yeah, I think it was, call it a strategic move to to kind of be involved there, knowing that we would be on everyone's minds when, you know, new information, new therapeutics came out. It's a really important point that you highlight and it's highlighted in another episode this season that being involved in research and taking a step further, learning your genetic status does keep you in the loop for when trials come up. So I think that's just a really important point that you bring up just to encourage people that if you want to be in the right place when something might open up, it's important to get involved. So kind of walk us through the next steps. How do things progress with your aunt and participating in the study? Yeah. So Two things fairly early on in participating in the study came out. One was a therapeutic trial, phase one, involving pills, something called nemotipine. And so in, in enrolling her in that was, was something that came up. And then finding out about the specific gene mutation, the progranulin mutation, that she was affected by that. And then questions about who should get tested. 
And I should say, I don't think it came out that we're doing this observational trial with myself, my aunt, my mom, and my uncle. Because as you know, they like to have study partners to kind of report. So we're kind of each other's study partners. So we would take these regular trips to this other institution to participate. And yeah, at some point they said, well, we've got this therapeutic trial. It involves taking a bunch of gel caps and MRIs and PET scans and lumbar punctures. And and my aunt was not quite capable of giving consent, but having talked to her early in the disease process, I knew that she wanted to do anything she could to further the science. So she got tested. We found out she had a specific progranulin mutation that qualified her for this nimodipine trial. And you know, some of the lessons I learned about that trial were that drug delivery is something really important to, for caregivers and researchers to think about. You've got someone with FTD who's got these behavioral issues, maybe some motor issues, some swallowing issues. And the therapeutic trial involved masses of these huge gel caps. And frankly, what happened was that over time, you know, I learned that the primary caregiver, my uncle, just couldn't get all the therapy into her. So, you know, in these therapeutic trials, they have these checklists and, you know, we kind of saw that we weren't quite uh, able to deliver the therapeutic as prescribed, but they account for that. But that was an early lesson to kind of understand when you get into therapeutic trials, like be realistic about what can and can't be done. Is there a time where you can give feedback? Like how are they monitoring her? How are they gathering data about the efficacy? Is it all of the scans? Like, can you tell us a little bit more about how the trial kind of operates? Sure. There's generally a research coordinator that uh, is your constant go-to person for all the practical stuff. And so they're the ones um, giving you the itinerary of the visit, often going through the consents, helping you arrange travel, all the all the real practical stuff. So they're, they're usually your first line of contact. And then there's the PI, the primary investigator, uh, scientist, physician. And they're, they're quite involved. They're invested in the trials. You have pretty good access to them as well. And the thing about therapeutic trials is they have to be very rigorous and rigid. They can't have too many variables. They can't kind of make too many exceptions. Otherwise, it'll kind of harm the integrity of the data that comes out of it. So they are certainly open to feedback. They always are eliciting information about our experience. But there's not always a lot of room to do something differently based on what you see. If a certain test needs to get done, you just have to get it done. You can figure out creative ways of making it happen, but but it's part of the trial and, and, and it's an essential piece that is data producing. You, you just have to get it done. I have a little bit of a follow-up or maybe it's not even, maybe it's opposite. So during the consent process, you mentioned that your aunt was progressed in the disease enough that she probably couldn't give full consent. Mm-hmm. Is that a common occurrence? And does the research coordinator accept the next of kin or the power of attorney? I think that's a super important aspect to successful clinical trial participation. Um, my aunt 
was well enough when we first got together on the observational trial to just sort of tell all the researchers, my nephew is my power of attorney for healthcare, for everything. He can sign everything on my behalf. And then pretty quickly there, my mom and uncle did the same thing. So everyone at this center was on board. I will say, fast forward to past couple of years, um, my mom and uncle got involved in two therapeutic trials and at least screening for them, let's say. And there, like I said, I had had power of attorney, I had documents, official documents, but there were things that apparently different states need. For example, in this one trial, which is in Florida, they really needed the power of attorney to say, you know, some verbiage about participating in clinical trials. It wasn't just healthcare in general. And so that was a scramble. We had to kind of really quickly get that put in there, notarized. Fortunately, they were well enough that, you know, a notary was was willing to sign off and say, yeah, they're, they're you know, they were here to kind of add that to their consents. But for, for folks looking into therapeutic trials or who are just beginning the journey with a loved one with FTD, I would say be over-inclusive with whatever power of attorney type documentation you can, because you never know when they're going to lose their ability to kind of add to it. That That's my advice. That's a good really advice. good, yeah, good tip. I think that's something that you wouldn't know unless you ran into that scenario. Are there other things, you know, top of mind going through the experience with managing this for your family members that you want to share with our audience? Yeah. So we talked about like, you know, understanding what the, the therapeutic delivery system looks like and trying as best as you can, thinking about, should my loved one do this? Thinking about what they'll sit for, what they'll do. You know, if, if you have someone who's really tends to be agitated, trials that require sitting there getting an infusion in your arm for, you know, two hours, it could be pretty tough without, you know, some extra support. So one of the things we ran into were, you know, you have to gather a bunch of health records uh, so they can make sure that whatever therapeutic they want to give you doesn't interact or that they can at least account for it. And so another tip is, as you're starting the journey here, really kind of keep track of your loved one's medical records, where they live. Fortunately, most things are on electronic health records, but, but have an idea of where those things are and how to get them because they will ask. And they'll ask about immunizations and things like that. And so to keep it from being you know, really, really burdensome, having those at your disposal is important. And I learned that while you can do some research online and even with talking to the institution doing the clinical trial, uh, that when it comes to screening and exclusion criteria, not all the information is necessarily there until you get there. And uh, sometimes they discover things while you're screening that either will exclude you or need to get taken care of to kind of continue to proceed. So, you know, my mom, my uncle, they were very, very motivated to get on these trials. And so they sort of empowered me to just get things done. And when we got to one institution, oh, they did an EKG. And then they said, hey, you know, your mom has this this finding here and we need that solved before we can keep moving on. And this trial was very far from where we lived. And so the idea of going back, getting that solved, coming back, that was just going to be way too onerous. So 
again, fortunately and gratefully, I had the wherewithal to know how to just find a cardiologist while we were there, like the next day, go in, it communicate sort of the urgency of, of resolving this while we're there screening. You know, we had a week there and we were able to kind of knock that thing off. But that's the kind of, those are the kind of hiccups that happen that caregivers uh, need to somehow embrace flexibility in the process. You know, these trialists are, they try to account for everything, but you just never know. Every human being has quirks. And then the other thing I learned was that there were certain exclusions that we didn't really count on. And one of them being, if I can say this was a gene therapy trial. And in gene therapy, you're going to be given immunosuppression because essentially the way a gene gets into you is with a virus. And you can't let your immune system kill that virus before it does its thing. So knowing that they're going to give you immunosuppression, a few things about that. One is they want to know that you're not going to reactivate some latent illness. And in my uncle's case, he had an antibody in him from uh, an infection he had when he was a child, which is extremely common in the country he came from. It doesn't mean he has any disease now, but because of the fear that this immunosuppression that came along with the gene therapy would bring this disease back out, you know, they excluded him. And so I think had I known that ahead of time, I might have could have looked into that earlier rather than drag him across the country. Then the other piece to that is sort of understanding the risks of the trial. And sometimes the focus is on just the therapeutic, just the experimental drug or gene in this case. But there are also like kind of ancillary stuff that happens that also have risks. In the case of gene therapy, you know, in the time of COVID, I think it's really important to think about if you're comfortable with reducing your loved one's immune responses for this potentially beneficial infection, but putting them at risk for COVID or, you know, other diseases, especially when they're not at home base, you know, they're in another state, uh, completely different medical system. And so actually it was a deal breaker for me. You know, I, I felt that the timing just wasn't right. Uh, I think if this was not a COVID era, I'd think about it more. But fortunately, we had an alternative trial that we were also looking at. And so that, that's where my attention went to. All of that was like very well said. Um, I think I have a couple of questions regarding the risk. And again, just the person that is going to be participating in the trial. So I'll use my dad for an example. I had a very hard time allowing much to happen to him. So I was always involved in, oh, he needs a new pillow. Okay. Let me research the best pillow. You know, just, I tried to be proactive. Um, do they, they meaning the people hosting the trial, sit you down and say, your loved one could develop A, B, C, and D. And if so, at any point, can you pull them from the trial if they develop whatever it is, or if you're just not comfortable with it anymore? I would say they are very good about that. In every experience I've had, they outline, I mean, risks down to the littlest detail that I think, you know, in my practice, don't even sort of talk about risks that rare, like boredom. They say, you know, risk of this trial is boredom. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> 
And they are really explicit about like, you can pull out of this trial at any time. We won't feel bad about it. And also they understand how FTD is progressive and that what you do now, six months and a year from now may not apply. So yeah, I have to say I've been so fortunate that they've been so conscientious about that. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey guys, we're taking a quick break to tell you all about our season seven sponsor, Learn FTD. How about we tell everyone our favorite resources on their site? Okay, you go first. I love that they give information about genetics and testing in a digestible way. You know, I like the facts. I love their new videos interviewing caregivers. I also love that they have a printout for doctor's visits. They call it the doctor discussion guide, helping you get your ducks in a row to help guide towards a diagnosis. They also have a list of resources and caregiver tips and so much more. And we just want to give a special thank you to Learn FTD for supporting our work and valuing our voices as advocates. It means a lot. Makes us feel so good. Go check out their website, www.learnftd.com slash rm. That's learnftd.com slash rm. If you could do things over, start over with the clinical trial process with each loved one, what would you do differently, if anything? <laughs> yeah, I think the trial with my aunt with all those those pills, those gel caps, I think I was maybe more optimistic than realistic because it was the first sort of therapeutic thing. And I was just like, well, let's just do it. We'll make this happen. We'll just, I'm just used to kind of problem solving. And I think if I had been more realistic and understood that um, this was going to be an incredible challenge for my aunt's caregiver, my uncle, to deliver this therapeutic I might have sort of put that ego aside and said, you know, while I'd love for this data point to make it, it's not realistic. So kind of understanding further details about the actual execution of how how something gets done. And then I think I wouldn't do something differently, but I would suggest really thinking about how long the trial lasts, because in the current trial we're doing, it's two years, and then it could be extended. And really thinking about what your loved one may may look like a year into it and how that's going to affect your ability to participate or, or you know, what kind of burden, additional burden that may introduce. Because I really think that it's important, in, you know, especially for genetic families to recognize that every single participant is incredibly valuable. I know there's studies out there that involve thousands and thousands of people, and it may not feel like the individual matters so much, but here in uh, such a rare disease, recruiting is so important. We want scientists and industry to know that this is a viable place to invest their time, energy, money. And if, if they can't recruit, they might turn their attention elsewhere to other diseases and completing the study. I think that when people bring their loved ones to these therapeutic trials, that they really should have the intent to to get to the end. It's not just important for that individual, that family, but everyone who might be positively, ultimately positively impacted by that, that clinical trial. And so I'm not saying, you know, think about what they'll be like in a year or two, because maybe you don't want to, participate, but more 
just plan for it. Just kind of understand how much time you're going to have to take off of work. What's the financial burden? How are you going to deal with transportation when they are less mobile and things like that? And ask for help from places like the AFTD. Like we want to, we want to make this therapeutic trial successful. We want to get to the end. These are the struggles I'm having or I'm anticipating. And there may be some, some good advice out there. Yeah. So that, that's the kind of thing I would think more about at the beginning of a, a therapeutic trial. I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve and I'm emotional. So I would like to know how you cope period. Well, I'll say <laughs> that was the end of my question. I'm going to ask the same thing. Like what about the emotional side of this for you? Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I think I'm storing it up. You know, I think that I'm honest when they pass away, it'll hit me. And I think I'm in go mode. I think I'm, you know, family, loved one, physician kind of wrapped up in one and um, kind of seeing, well, seeing the whole process as, you know, our nature, it's sad, unwanted for sure, but I see a lot of sad things in healthcare. And um, I think I take the approach of, you know, problem solving. And that's how I cope. Hopefully doing good for the people I love and for people I don't know who may benefit from this. And so I think I can put the the grief on hold for now. Yep. You're very smart. <laughs> you are. You I push- mean, physician, family, all of it. Like you're very aware and you're very in touch with what needs to happen next. And that's a good uh, feature of a caregiver. So Hats off to you. I can't imagine supporting one loved one in a clinical trial and you have multiple and this long family history. I mean, it's it's very heavy. And the fact that, you know, you know your strength as a physician and problem solver and you're attacking the problem where you can and supporting your family is just really honorable. And then also doing your own advocacy for example, by contacting us and being like, I need people to know about my experience and some of our best episodes and best learnings from our community have been from people being like, hey. So uh, I just want to say thank you for opening up about everything. Is there anything else that you really want to advocate for in terms of approaching the trials or anything else you want to share about your family? Pop on my notes. And and let me just say thank you both, uh, Marie and Rachel. I think what you're doing is incredible. And I'm so grateful, Dr. Rosen. You could edit that out, but turn me on on to you. Oh, Dr. Um, Rosen. (laughs) We won't edit that out. He's no, he's our hero. We love him. If there if there's something, stop me. If there's nothing, and now because you are a member of our community, we're gonna end with least favorite. Oh yeah. Well, that shirt. Is there anything else? Is there anything? Um, He has notes. So let him look at his notes. I love when people have notes. So as part of therapeutic trials, they, they ask about suicidality. And as we all know, um, we just, we can't, sometimes can't predict what our loved one is going to say. And it can be totally contrary to what our daily experience with that person is. And, um, that can be pretty heavy. And so I just, uh, 
want people to know that um, that's a necessary feature of clinical trials and gird yourself for the things you may hear and learn and, and how you might experience that. Um, that's an important point. point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Rachel, take it away. My, my favorite part. So in my household, every night around the dinner table, we talk about our least favorite part of the day. So your least, the, the people call it the pit and the peach, the thorn and the rose, the worst part of the day and the best part of the day. But we're going to kind of flip it to fit the FTD mold. And I would like to know your least favorite part of the clinical trials and your favorite, favorite part of the clinical trials or being a caregiver to somebody who's in one. The least favorite part is is the uh, insertion of the IV. Okay, so that being a loved one who's, you know, got a little disinhibition uh, and and kind of reacting to getting an IV put in is not my favorite. My favorite part about participating in the clinical trial, well, there's two parts. One is just being around the uh, research nurses, the coordinators, the PI who are so invested in, in feeling um, a real warmth from them that they, they're doing this because they want to make a difference. And the other favorite part of participating is I'll lean into my mom and my uncle, like get right in their face after, you know, as we're driving home from the trial and I'll just say, do you feel the drugs working? Is it getting into your brains? Are you, are you feeling better? And they'll always give me a smile and a thumbs up. And so that's my favorite part. That's the best, the best. I just want to know, do you feel hopeful having a loved one in a trial? It is it giving you hope? Yeah, yeah. I think knowing what I know about what's understood about at least this mutation, this version of the disease, and the interest in industry, biomedical industry, in solving it, uh, I'm incredibly optimistic. And what I really hope will happen is that this optimism can spread to the other areas of FTD that aren't necessarily progranulin, um, that aren't necessarily as clearly genetic. And so I see it as a natural progression. I think we're on the cutting edge of something really amazing for the whole FTD community. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We release new episodes each week on Tuesdays, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you want to connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram at RememberMePodcast. You can visit our website, RememberMeFTD.com, for more information on FTD, resources, and ways to support our podcasts like joining Remembers Only. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Ears and Rachel Martinez. And the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent. <laughs>